my fellow assassins, to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So here we are at yet another weekend, my fellow assassins. I hope you all had a good week and are looking forward to the weekend like I am. Uh, Now, if you remember a a while back, probably like a couple months ago, uh, we talked about uh, GitHub Copilot and Microsoft and OpenAI getting into a a lawsuit against them uh, for software piracy with their GitHub Copilot thing. So there's been some new details on that, so we are going to dive into that into this episode. But before we get into that, let's get into this week's trivia question. So for this week, this week's trivia question is x86 assembly has two different types of syntax. What are they called? So what are the names of the two different types of syntax for x86 assembly? So that is your trivia question for the week. Now, before we get into the cybersecurity tip for the week, do you guys remember a couple weeks ago uh, for the cybersecurity tip where I mentioned if, like, basically how to look out for phishing emails? Well, I actually got one that met the exact criteria that we talked about uh, for that cybersecurity tip. So these tips are paying off, am I right? Uh, So basically what happened was I got an email from American Express saying my account ending in XXXX, and um, by the way, I'm not putting X's in there to hide my personal identity or anything. That's literally what it had in the email. So if I did have an American Express account, or even if I had multiple accounts, it'd be kind of hard to tell which account it is if all they gave me were account ending in XXXX. So that's a little interesting. Um, And by the way, uh, when I say I got an email from American Express, um, I'm putting that in very, very heavy quotation marks, by the way. Very heavy air quotes. Uh, but moving on here. Um, so they they said, so first off, the email, I, I checked the email, of course, because that, that was the first thing that you got to do. And I kid you not, this was the email address that supposedly is from American Express. Uh, it is no reply underscore v n r y h p w t at hallmarkfisheries.com. Now, I'm no linguist or, you know, English major or anything like that, uh, but I'm pretty sure hallmarkfisheries.com is not the same as American Express. I'm pretty sure if I wrote a program to compare strings, I'm pretty sure hallmarkfisheries.com and American Express, I'm pretty sure if I compare those to see if they're equal, I'm pretty sure it would return false. Now, I haven't tested it, so I can't, you know, say 100% my program says that this isn't true, But my gut instinct tells me 
that uh, this isn't from American Express. Um, so as you guys remember from the that episode a couple weeks ago where this was a cybersecurity t- tip, you'll recall that that is a dead giveaway that this email is fake and a phishing attempt. But it goes deeper than that, because if you look at the email, I mean, the email looked legit like it was from American Express. It had all the American Express branding and all of that good stuff. And they even had the audacity to have uh, the footer and keep the footer in place and, you know, had like the link and everything that said to report any suspicious emails to AmericanExpress.com slash phishing, which I found quite hilarious seeing that this was a phishing email. Um, but I guess, you know, if you're trying to be convincing, you got to go all out. Um, and also in case you were curious, the link that it tried to send me to was not at all even close to American Express. It it wasn't even close to their website. I don't even remember what it was, but it uh, wasn't even close. Uh, they didn't even try to do any of that shenanigans where they like keep American Express in the URL, but, like, have other things in there. Like, they didn't even try that. Like, it it was bad. Uh, but from what I do remember, the email, the link that they sent was one of those, like, shortened URLs. So, like, you can't actually see what the URL is until you click on it. Um, but, yeah, the, the link was uh, not to American Express's website. Um, but I also knew it was fake because uh, I don't even have an American Express account, don't have an American Express card, have no relation to American Express whatsoever. So I knew right from the get-go this was bunk, um, and looking into those details just proved it even more so, just drove the nails even deeper into that coffin that this was definitely not legit. So there you go, uh, cybersecurity tip paying off in real life um so if if any of you have had any interesting experiences like that that you uh heard a cybersecurity tip and then you had an experience where you know that information paid off be cool to let me know i'd be interested to hear the tips helping you out contact at dark assassins inc if you want to reach out for uh, anything like that or if you have any questions or topics you want me to talk about you can send me an email there uh, the link is for that is also in the show notes that you can send. Uh, but with that out of the way, let's get into this week's cybersecurity tip. So for this week's cybersecurity tip, I wanted to talk about something what that it, it's related kind of like last week we talked about securing your data. This is kind of sort of similar in the same vein. Um, But this is when, basically, it's to be careful when you're deleting files on your computer. Because just because you delete a file doesn't mean it's gone. Um, And because generally speaking, when you delete a file, all that's going on behind the scenes on, like, the operating system level is you're telling the operating system, hey, this is now free space, and it basically just dereferences the pointer pointing to that location on the disk so the OS no longer has access to it. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's gone. So specifically when we're talking about, like, spinning hard drives, basically if you 
what you're doing is you're telling the operating system. So the operating system, it has like a bunch of pointers to the locations on the disk where all your files are. So basically, if you take the pointer away to that location on the disk, you can't access it anymore. But just because you take the pointer away and you can't physically access it, that doesn't mean the data is not gone. The data is still there. Um, it's just a matter of depending on how long it's been since you deleted that file and how much new stuff you've written to your disk. Potentially, you could have overwritten it, but you might not necessarily have overwritten it. Um, now, it's a little bit different when you're talking about SSDs because if you have an SSD that supports trim and you have trim enabled, yeah, that file is basically gone because how tr in a nutshell, basically how trim works is once you delete a file, the controller on the SSD will basically talk to the operating system and tell it um, the blocks used to house that data are no longer in use and it can be cleared in that block of data that had the file and it can be wiped clean uh, because how flash memory works versus how uh, spinning disks works is it's different how they store the data um, so like when you're when you're writing to like a hard disk for example it's basically just a bunch of ones and zeros like on a magnetic strip thing on the disk whereas when you're writing to like an ssd like those are actually cells that are either essentially there's data there or there's data not there like you can't have like you know intermittent like ones and zeros from one file going into another one it's like in blocks so you have to basically wipe those blocks so if you have trim enabled it'll basically kind of do all that for you it's kind of sort of like a garbage collection kind of a thing um, but it's still good practice to uh, make sure you're taking necessary precautions when you're deleting files, even if you do have trim enabled, you know, just just to be on the safe side. Um, so if you do have a spinning hard drive and you don't have an SSD, um, there's a couple things that you can do um, to help, you know, prevent data from being recovered. Um, so when you do delete that file, um, that data is still there until your operating system overwrites that location on the disk with a new file. Um, but just be, but like I said, just because you, but you don't know when that's going to happen or if that's going to happen. So because just because your operating system can't reach that file anymore, doesn't mean it's not accessible anymore. So this is basically how you how like data recovery works like if your os gets like corrupted or whatever that's why if you take your your drive to like a data recovery place they can still recover the data because just because your operating system can't access it doesn't mean the data is gone because the data isn't gone it's still there so if your operating system gets corrupted or you know whatever the data is still there it's just a matter of trying to recover essentially the ones and zeros and turning it back into readable data. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's basically how, how the data recovery works because it's able to kind of scrub the disk and it's able to kind of like re put, put back together the files um, because if they're still there. So what can you be done? What can you do to basically ensure 
that the data is unretrievable. So basically the way you do this is you shred your files essentially, just kind of like you shred, you know, documents like with personal information on it and whatnot. Um, so this can basically be done in a number of ways. Um, the first one is you can use a shred like a pro like a shredder program. And really all what this will do is it'll essentially before it deletes the file and basically, you know, tells the operating system that you can dereference the pointer to where that file is located. Basically what it'll do is it'll go over the entire file and just overwrite it with a bunch of garbage data. Um, some one of the, I think the most um, common is like just overwriting it with a bunch of zeros over and over again um, so the data can't be recovered that's one way you can do it another thing you could do is you could just encrypt everything um, so if your data all of your data is encrypted or you encrypt the file before you delete it um, even if someone would try to recover that data even if all the data is still intact because it's all encrypted there's no way they're going to be able to recover anything meaningful from it, right? It's just going to be a bunch of garbage. Um, so that's a, those are probably, I would say, the two big easy ways um, to protect your data when you're deleting it to make sure that no one can get access to it. And another thing that you can do is you can just make sure that you encrypt your drives in general. Um, like when you're when you're first getting in, booting up your your new machine or you're first setting it up, just, you know, tick the box to encrypt the disk. Um, so that way, if someone does get a hold of your computer or your hard drive or whatever, your SSD, um, they try to access the data on it, they won't be able to because everything's encrypted. Um, so those are the ways that you can protect your data. Um, so just wanted to, you know, throw that out there. Um, I think some people, some people think that because when they think when they delete a file, it's gone. Um, no, not really. Uh, <laughs> and then I, I, the other thing that you also have to kind of think about, like especially on like Windows and I think pretty much Mac OS and Linux, um, usually if you are kind of going through the file explorer or finder or whatever your file win manager is on Linux, um, when you delete a file, usually it goes to the recycle bin so you can still access it. Um, and then sometimes it'll be like, you know, you have a time window for when you can access it before it gets fully deleted. So there, there's a bunch of different ways that this happens. And then the other thing you also have to consider is if you're deleting anything in the cloud, you have absolutely no idea if that data is gone. I mean, there's a good chance that it's not gone for a couple of reasons. One, if your cloud provider is reputable, they're probably doing routine backups to make sure that in case something happens on their end, they can recover your data. So even if you delete something, there's most likely a backup, backup of it somewhere. Um, and then the other thing is depending on your backup or your cloud provider, they might be keeping your data around anyway for who knows what reasons. Um, so if you make sure that, like we mentioned last episode, if you're putting anything in the cloud, making sure everything's encrypted and only you have the keys to decrypt it, that's a great way to counteract that. Um, but yeah, just in general, just kind of wanted to throw that out there as a precaution when you're deleting files. Just kind of know that the there's a couple extra steps you need to go through to make sure that that file is no longer accessible. 
uh, to anyone. So that's this week's cybersecurity tip. Now, I guess we can move on to uh, one of my favorite parts of the episode, which is what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week? So this week, I got back to working on my distributed compiler, and I, I think I mentioned that I only had, I think, Linux and Mac support for it. Um, so this week, I added Windows support for it, which was kind of a big step. Um, because it's Windows, I had to... <laughs> basically kind of rewrite well I didn't have to rewrite the entire Ansible playbook to deploy for Windows but I had to rewrite a decent chunk of it because obviously if something works on usually in the programming world if you're working not everything like if you're doing something like Python or Java it doesn't matter but if you're doing something like Ansible or which Ansible, I guess, really isn't programming, but if you're doing anything with, like, C, C++, or any kind of, like, compiled language like that, uh, Windows is kind of always its own thing that you have to account for, which is always a fun time. Um, so I have... So, but I did eventually get it working. It was a pain in the butt because it didn't like some things that I was doing, so I had to do a couple kind of workarounds. And so instead of, like running telling windows to run a command it didn't like that so basically what i did was i wrote a batch file and then sent the batch file over and then executed the batch file and then it was happy with that so i guess it didn't like how the encoding was going on with ansible or whatever the case was i don't know i i, I just kind of gave up trying and beating my head against the wall because I didn't feel like dealing with it anymore, so I was like, you know what? It's just going to be easier if I just, in my Python script, as I'm like, you know, compiling, doing the, getting everything prepped to go into the Ansible playbook, if I just create a batch file in the Python script and then have the Ansible playbook send that off and run it. And that was the solution I came up with, and it worked, so we're going with it. <laughs> um, so the other thing that I did, which... I actually just did today uh, the, when I'm recording this episode is I, I think I mentioned I did mention last week about turning that multi-threaded server program I had um, and basically turning it into a Docker container, but it didn't really do much because all you could do was like request a file and it would send you the file back. So this time I actually gave it a purpose and made it a useful utility. So, long-time listeners of the show know that I am no fan of any kind of schooling, and um, that is putting it mildly, I would think. Um, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, long-time listeners, um, but one thing that I cannot wait for is the day that I don't have to do it anymore. So, you know what I did... I may I edited that multi-threaded server program to instead of getting giving a f random file back what it will do is calculate the time left that I have until I am officially done with school forever and I am finally free and it works 
really nice, if I do say so myself. So it wasn't all that complicated, really, because I, I pretty much had all the code there. I just had to um, input the date of when I'm going to be done. And then really all I have to do is get the current time, subtract the current time by the time I'm going to be done, and then, you know, format the result and send it back. Um, so that's currently running in a Docker container in my home lab right now. So... And then I also wrote two uh, clients for it for uh, Windows and then Mac OS and Linux, which can can I just say anyone that's programmed anything networking related in Windows, can we just all agree that Winsock is horrendous and terrible and I it is just not fun to program for. I, I'll tell you what, like Doing anything with, like, networking in sockets is generally complicated enough as it is. And then Winsock is just like, here, let me just throw a couple wrenches, wrenches into the mix and make everything more complicated. Because, well, yes, when you're writing something with, like, C and C++, generally it's expected that there's going to be a couple of things on Windows that's different from things on like Mac OS and Linux. And occasionally you'll have something on Mac OS that's different than on Linux and vice versa. But the networking is just completely different. Like the premise is basically the same, but like the includes that you have to add and kind of like the 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 variable and the function names you have to call are just different. And it's annoying because like, yeah, I mean, you you understand it comes with the territory that things aren't always going to be the same, but it's just really annoying when, like, it like it's kind of anno- it, it It's not too bad when you only have to, like, modify a function or something so it plays nice with, with everyone. But it's a completely different thing when you essentially have to write two completely separate programs and determine which operating system it's running on as far as which one to run, which that's just annoying. And plus the fact that Winsock is just, ugh. Um, So that little tangent aside, anyway, um, so I wrote two clients. I wrote one for Windows and one for Mac OS and Linux that I can basically run whenever I want to query my uh, multi-threaded server running in Docker, and it'll tell me how much time I have left. So for anyone curious, uh, let me run the script here. I have 313 days, 21 hours, 26 minutes, and 8 seconds remaining until I am a free man. And let me tell you, I cannot wait. Now, another thing that I do want to do with this project is uh, the next step that I want to take in it is I want to create an iOS app that I can literally just have on my phone at all times and I can just press a button and it'll tell me. So I don't have to be at home. I don't have to have a computer with me. I just have to have my phone, press the button, and I can see how much time is remaining. Um, So that'll be that'll be nice, but that'll be that'll be quite a bit of work since I've done a little bit of iOS programming like with Swift, but I am by no means an expert, not even close. 
and I have never done anything networking related with Swift at all, so that's going to be quite the learning experience for me. Um, I think it should be fun. I mean, it's base, it's a super basic project. It's literally, I just have to figure out how to uh, reach out to a server and print the result. That's basically all I have to do. Um, so it shouldn't be too much work. Just figuring out how to do it uh, might take a little bit of time. Um, now, I also mentioned last week that I was going to go through and try to upgrade some of my Macs to the latest operating system. And uh, that was interesting. Um, I guess we can start off with the XServe. So the XServe upgraded without a hitch. It went perfectly. It went super smooth. The only thing that I had to do was connect an external USB hub to it to actually have keyboard and mouse support and I still have to do that if it's booted up but there's a couple things here uh, one that was a, a known thing um, as far as open core and number two it's a server that's in my server rack and the only time that I access it with the keyboard and mouse is when specifically when I'm installing operating systems on it like I if I ever need to access it when I'm not doing that I just remote into it and either do a remote desktop or through an SSH terminal so that's literally a non-issue for me um so yeah, that went super smooth. And also, by the way, uh, lights out management still working perfectly. Um, so even though the XServe has been long discontinued by Apple for over a decade now, still running the latest OS and have a working lights out management part. So that is awesome. Now, the Mac Pro, that's a little bit of a different story. So, like the XServe, I had to plug in an external USB hub to install Ventura on there. The problem was, while I thought everything was going to work, Bluetooth still isn't working. And the reason for that, at least I'm pretty sure the reason for that, is the US or the Bluetooth card works on an internal USB 1.1 header like inside the Mac Pro and that support doesn't exist yet with OpenCore. So they figured out a workaround with external USBs where if you plug in a USB hub that's I think USB 2.0 or 3.0 or something like that, it'll be able to bypass uh, the check because basically what'll ha what happens is if you plug in a... Uh, external mouse or keyboard uh, to one of the USB ports, the system will default it to USB like 1.1 because it detects that it's like a keyboard or whatever, and that's why you didn't have keyboard and mouse support. But if you plugged it into a USB hub, it would force um, those peripherals to be a higher standard and they'd be able to go through. But because but Bluetooth, they they haven't figured that out yet, um, so that was kind of annoying. The thing that was even more annoying was it was 
teasing me because it it had the Bluetooth thing like in the settings and I was able to toggle it on and off. I just couldn't connect anything, which was kind of annoying. Um, And then I also had some issues with it like freezing and crashing on me, which I think is because I had a USB 3 card in the one of the PCI slots. And I think I saw somewhere in the documentation that that was potentially causing issues. Um, but thankfully, I still had uh, the Monterey 12.6.2 installer downloaded from the last time this happened. Um, because uh, I bet you can't guess um, basically kind of how the story has progressed here. I bet you can't guess uh, which idiot didn't follow his own directions and uh, make a time machine backup before upgrading. So he had to do a fresh install of Monterey and install all of his apps back um, because he didn't make a time machine backup. Yeah, I don't know who that who who could possibly have been that dumb, but uh, yeah. Um, also, one thing I want to ask you guys is how is it that my XServe was literally the smoothest update? to 13.2 that I had out of all my computers with the one caveat being my 2017 MacBook Pro which by the way is actually natively supported how is it that the XServe a computer that is like 15 years old or something like that had the smoothest upgrade process because my 2015 MacBook Pro when I upgraded it and installed the root patches the Wi-Fi broke on it And then I had to uninstall the root patches, but in order to uninstall the root patches, I needed internet access. So I had to go find a dongle to connect Ethernet to it so I could then uninstall the root patches, reboot the machine, reinstall the root patches, reboot the machine again, and then Wi-Fi worked. So it was just something wrong with the root patches, but there's obviously the hiccup there. And then my Mac Mini, for whatever reason, like failed to download the, the install, like the the update at first which was kind of weird but but then once it actually downloaded and started installing it was fine but but yeah that was it was weird it, it's it was funny that the xServe was the one that went the smoothest which you would think it would it wouldn't be seeing that it's the oldest hardware but what do i know um but speaking of mac os do you guys remember a few weeks ago or a month or so ago when i talked about uh mac os someone figured out how to run mac os in a docker container so i tried to give that a spin this week and it worked uh it didn't work particularly well but but i will i do have to give the caveat that i was running this in a virtual machine (laughs) so it was basically like two layers of virtualization and when i first started trying to run it i was running it without any kind of desktop environment or anything like that so you it's kind of hard to get a graphical interface of Mac OS if your uh, operating system doesn't have a graphical interface. Um, so I think a lot of the issues I was having getting it to work was simply the fact that I was running it in a virtual machine. Um, and at least in the beginning, I didn't have any kind of like graphical user interface. I think that was probably part of the reason. But even with that said, I was able to get, they did have, they do, there was, there is a headless version that you can install, which I believe was uh, Catalina 
and that I got that up and running and it and it worked. Um, the one thing I did notice though was like it really made the CPU go and like because it was running on one of my uh, enterprise servers, uh, the fans they they started going a little bit. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't I mean. I think I'll probably just stick to, I mean, I got plenty of Macs, so I'll probably just stick to using them, but it was, it was cool to play around with. I think if I do try to do this again, I'll definitely try to do it on like actual real hardware and not in a virtual machine. Um, but, but yeah, anyway, uh, so let's get into this, uh, this lawsuit update. So I met, we, we mentioned when this story first broke that, Microsoft GitHub, which Microsoft owns GitHub, and OpenAI, they kind of all collaborated to make a GitHub Copilot. Um, and GitHub Copilot is, if, if you're unaware or unfamiliar, forgot, GitHub Copilot is essentially a way to, it's this, it's an artificial intelligence to essentially help you write code. Um, basically, kind of one of the use cases is, you can essentially like write a comment for the function definition, for example. So like this function will take in an integer and then compute, I don't know, the the radius of a circle with it or something. I don't know. Um, and then it'll, and then Copilot will write the function for you. Um, so that's that's one of the use cases. But basically, the point of Copilot was to help developers write code. Um, and GitHub developers didn't like this because there were numerous instances where code was you can't even say taken the inspiration of because it was essentially verbatim copied and pasted um, and in a lot of and in some of these instances that would go against various licensing agreements for open source projects so github developers filed a lawsuit saying that this was software piracy on an unprecedented scale uh, that, that that was the quote that they used um, so unsurprisingly uh, microsoft github and OpenAI want the court to dismiss the case which as you you i don't think anyone should be surprised by this um but they're trying to get the case dismissed, um, and so basically, the the I'll have the the link um, for this Verge article that I'm I'm referencing down in the show notes. Um, but but basically, the gist of this is Microsoft and GitHub are claiming that while it well, Copilot like draws from the large body of open source code that's available to the public. Um, It's simply making suggestions rather than explicitly writing and claiming it. It's it's basically saying, like, you know, this code's all public, and it's therefore it's public knowledge, so we're just pulling that in for you, I guess, is kind of what it's saying, which I don't know. Um, so let's see. They um, they're trying to get the case dismissed, and let's see when is when is this uh, supposed to be dismissed here? Um, yeah, there's. I don't know. I I don't know. I I kind of have a hard time thinking that the court's gonna dismiss the case 
if you ask me, I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of looking at this from afar. Um, but I mean, I think the software developers and the, the GitHub developers have a, have a decent case, especially if they can, you know, prove with evidence that Copilot is, you know, pulling code and they can show that that code came from a repository, like copied and pasted from a repository that has, you know, like a GPL license or some other kind of open source license that Copilot copying and pasting that code claiming that, I don't know if it's claiming it's original or what the case is, but that is, you know, a violation of the, uh, the license there. Um, now... This is, this, I think this is also pretty similar to issues that are coming up, you know, with other AI technologies, specifically in the, the ones that are generating, you know, pictures, um, like Dolly 2, for instance. Um, people are, I think I heard like Getty Images is like getting mad and there's a lot of, you know, artists are, you know, upset with it because you know where do you draw the line <laughs> between a derived work versus a straight-up copy you know there's the there's that saying out there that if you steal something from one person that's plagiarism but if you steal something from a bunch of people that's called research um so yeah, I don't I don't know. Um so the the court is supposed to hear this dis supposed dismissal that uh GitHub and Microsoft and OpenAI are trying to file. The the court's supposed to hear it in May. Um so we'll probably have more details then um as far as, you know, what's going to happen in this case. Um uh, but it is interesting, especially uh when you consider Microsoft is pledged like bill has pledged billions of dollars to open a the open ai project um and spe specifically uh, they're they're also trying to bring the chat gpt uh to bing which i think will be kind of interesting if they're able to get that integrated into bing uh google might be getting kind of scared although i have heard that google apparently has their kind of they've been working on their own version of chat gpt like their own language model thing but it hasn't i guess gotten to the level of accuracy and precision that they want to release it to the public um, but I don't know if Microsoft's able to get chat GPT included in Bing, Google might really be, uh, racing to try to get that in whatever their version is integrated into their search. Um, so that's kind of the update on the lawsuit there. We'll definitely hear more in May and, uh, I'll be sure to try to keep you guys updated, uh, with that as things go along. Now, to, I guess to wrap up this episode for this week, um, one thing that I, I don't remember if I've actually told this story before, um, but one thing that's pretty common in corporate environments is to have USB devices pretty much locked down. Um, you might be able to read from USBs, but writing to them is pretty much a no-go unless you have like a, a corporate... USB. Now, this story comes from 
years ago. Um, basically, I was I was an intern at the time, and I noticed this. Um, so this is basically a workaround that I found to allow you to write things to a USB even if your computer is has the USB write capability disabled. Now, there are a couple prerequisites, I guess you could say, to this. Um, but if you're a software developer, it's probably a lot easier for you to get around this because the, the thing that you need is you need to have a way to spin up a virtual machine on your device. Now, whether that's you have to download VirtualBox or VMware or QEMU or KVM or some other virtualization uh, application or whatever, um, if you don't have, if you don't already have it on your machine or you don't have the privilege to install it, if you're a software developer, one benefit that you have is you need to test code. So if you can convince your IT department to install some, you know, say like VirtualBox on your machines because you need to test code, because that's that's why I had VirtualBox on my machine when I was working as an intern, because I had to do software testing. And as I've mentioned Many times on this podcast, I have multiple development development environments in my home lab running in virtual machines. So virtual machines are pretty critical when it comes to software developers, um, when it comes to their jobs, so they can adequately test their code across multiple environments to make sure their code works in multiple environments. Because as we've discussed many times, and even on this episode, um, Depending on what language you use, uh, it's not guaranteed to work across every operating system. So just because it works on your machine you're developing on does not mean it's going to work across other machines and different operating systems. So that's why you need either physical machines to test this on or even easier virtual machines to test this on. So if you're a software developer, you kind of have that valid legit valid argument of why you need need it on your machine so first basically the main prereq is you need to have a virtual machine um so i'll kind of get into why that is uh but a little bit of the story behind it so obviously the reason why companies do this is to prevent people from essentially stealing their data i mean i mean it makes sense right you don't want your employees, you know, stealing sensitive company data just, you know, through a USB drive uh, because you can't really track that. I mean, like, if someone's trying to send something to their personal email address, like, if you're the company that runs the email server, you can easily see your employee is sending emails to their personal email account with a bunch of files and their corporate files so you can bust them pretty easily. But if they're smuggling stuff off off on USB drives, that's kind of a lot harder to track. So the easiest way to disable that and prevent that from happening in the first place is just disable them the ability to write to USB drives. Um, So that's kind of the reason why they do that. Now, another thing that I should probably also mention is this whole like workaround thing that I'm going to talk about. I don't actually condone this uh, 
to for any illegal purposes. I'm just kind of mentioning it. If you want, if you ever have the need to get something off, or you just want to play around with it and show that you can do it, which was part of the reason that drove me. Um, but also, I was, I think, I was, I was a college kid at the time, so obviously I wasn't as smart in the cybersecurity stuff as I am now. Um, so I, I was dumb at the time. So if honestly, if like right now with my current job and with what I know now, I would just not do this at all because it's in my opinion, best practice to not even have a reason to get anything off your work machine because you should just keep your work stuff and your personal stuff separate for multiple reasons. Um, privacy and your own personal security being one of them. Um, but anyway, all that kind of aside. So basically the story was when I was in college, I interned and I was interning across the country, different state. So I didn't really have access to my, you know, normal, you know, home equipment that I usually have, which actually by this time I was actually this was like super early into my home labbing um, when I started home labbing, which I didn't know it at the time. and I didn't know, realize that's what it was called, but I was. Um, so basically, I, I, you know, I had my the company laptop um, and I tried to plug a USB drive in there to uh, get some stuff off of my laptop and it didn't work. And I didn't I wasn't sure why. And I was trying to figure out because be, I. Even at the time, I was, you know, I did have some cyber background, but not as much in like the, as much as, you know, watching out for my own personal security and stuff. At that time, I was really into how can I break something? How can I get around the, like, how can I, I don't know if I'd say hack is the right word, but, you know, how can I subvert, you know, the rules in place to do what I want a thing to do? Um, so the reason why this came up was the, because I mentioned I was staying, I was across the country, the place I was, and because it was just for the summer, I, it's not like I was renting a house or anything. I was basically staying in one of those like extended stay hotel places with like a little suite type thing that had like a super tiny kitchen and a bed and a couch. And that was basically it. Um, and the internet was about like a megabit down on a good day. <laughs> so really terrible internet. Um, and my home server had a bunch of DVDs that I had ripped, um, so I could have my Plex library, but obviously I wasn't streaming anything on that terrible internet. So I wanted to get my movies so I could have them with me locally on one of my uh, personal machines so I could I could watch them because at that time I had my Mac mini so what I want that I had hooked up to the TV that was in the room. So what I wanted to do was get my movies on my Mac mini so I could watch the movies on the TV. But because the internet was so bad, it's not like I could stream them from my house or my parents' house at the time. Um, so the only way to do that was to get my movies. Now, 
obviously I can't connect one of my personal laptops to the uh, internet at the office because they, they wouldn't be able to connect because they don't have their credentials. So <laughs> the way I got around that was I used my work laptop connected to the internet because by the way their their internet I think they had was like was blazing fast it was super quick um so basically I got the movies on there then it was a matter of how do I get them off <laughs> which as you can already hear this was a very stupid thing of me to do so I do not recommend anyone doing this please don't do this please don't be dumb like me but I'm just doing this for an example of how you can get around the USB restrictions. So I got the movies that I wanted, and then it was a matter of how to get them off. And that's kind of where I discovered I could not write to my USB drive. Now, I did have the option to make virtual machines, so I got a thought. One thing you can do with VirtualBox, and you can also do this with like VMware and I'm sure other virtualization technologies, is you can pass through devices from your host operating system into the virtual machine. Now, if you pass a device into the virtual machine, the virtual machine doesn't have any kind of restrictions on that device, meaning if you have a file in the virtual machine and you can write it to the USB drive, no problem if you pass the USB drive through. So yeah, you can't write anything to the USB drive if it's connected to your host operating system, but if it's passed through to the virtual machine, you can write to it all day long. Now, anyone that's dealt with virtual machines might see the solution already, but for those that don't see the solution, Another thing you can do with virtual machines is you can pass through folders and share folders from your host machine with the virtual machine. So basically, you if you had a um, if you were testing code, for example, you had a document, you had a folder on your host machine that had all your source code. So instead of having to manually like do some kind of network copy or something into the virtual machine, you can set up a shared folder with the virtual machine so the virtual machine has access to that folder where your source code is. So now you might be able to see what the solution is. So basically what you do is you plug your USB drive into your computer, pass the USB drive to the virtual machine, and then wherever the data is on your machine that you want to get off your machine but can't because write restrictions to the USB drive, you take that folder, pass it through to the virtual machine, and then use the virtual machine as the middleman to take the files from your host machine and write them to the USB drive. And it worked. <laughs> it worked really good. Uh, so that's the solution. If you ever happen to be in a situation where you have the USB that's write restricted because on the host operating system, if you can get a virtual machine spun up, pass that USB to the virtual machine, then mount whatever shared folders you want for whatever data you want, and you can copy it directly off to the USB drive, and you're good to go. So the another really stupid thing that I did is as if this whole th 
This whole situation obviously is super stupid and very dumb of me, as I've mentioned, so please don't ever be in this situation and don't do this because it's really stupid. But I made it even dumber for myself because then I went to some of my coworkers and told them what I did. <laughs> Which was probably an even dumber idea, if I'm being completely honest. Um, but the, the they were all, all nice and good sports about it. And they were honestly pretty surprised that you could even do that in the first place. Like, they were pretty much just as surprised as I was. And they were pretty impressed with my uh, quote-unquote hacking skills. Um, so, yeah. It, but... But anyway, like I mentioned, I, I don't ever recommend that you be in a situation like this where you need to get personal information off your work device because in my humble opinion, knowing what I know now, never mix the two. Just always keep them separate. Make sure you always keep them separate. Just Just, just don't ever get into this because it's... In the event that you get caught, you know, doing something like that, you have a very high likelihood of uh, losing your job. Um, and obvious, obviously, as I mentioned before, I don't condone anyone doing this to siphon off uh, company data onto a personal USB drive for, you know, whatever means they want. Like, I don't condone that at all. Um, this was just kind of something for fun. That if you want to play around with subverting, you know, rules in place, there's ways to do it. Um, so that 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 is one thing that I always, you know, kind of once I started really kind of getting into cybersecurity stuff was, um, and, and I guess it, in a way it's almost sort of like pen testing in a way, except kind of sort of not really. Um, but I mean, potentially, I mean, you're you're you you can essentially use this to uh, steal data, which is something that, you know, pen testers are checking for if they can find exploits and stuff to uh, siphon data off uh, company servers and stuff. That's one thing that they'll do uh, during a pen test. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Who knew that uh, a virtual machine, an innocent virtual machine just for, for testing and developing code could be a, a way to steal corporate secrets? Or in my case, uh, get my movie collection locally onto a USB drive so I could then put it on my Mac Mini and uh, watch my movies. Which, by the way, another thing that I also didn't realize at the time that would have been a much easier solution was I had a, lo I had a router with me. I literally brought a router with me so I could have all my devices connected a lot easier so I wouldn't have to go through all that rigmarole of connecting to the hotel Wi-Fi I could just connect to the router so literally I could have just and even easier than that I could have just connected a, an Ethernet cable because I had Ethernet cables with me I could have just connected Ethernet cables to the, the computers and just did a network transfer that way so yeah I in hindsight you know there are so many, so many better ways I could have gone about doing that and just not even been in that situation in the first place. Um, but yeah, um, fun times. Um, growing up is fun, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so 
Before we wrap up this episode, we have to get back to that trivia question. So for this week's trivia question is x86 assembly has two different types of syntax. What are they called? And uh, one hint is uh, one of the syntax names is the name of one of the producers of x86 processors. So the two types of x86 assembly syntax are Intel and AT&T. Yes, AT&T, like, uh, like the phone company AT&T. There's a type of uh, x86 assembly syntax called AT&T. So uh, hope you got, uh, maybe you got one of those, maybe you got both of them. If you did, congratulations. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you uh, leave it a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. Also, be sure to share with a friend or family member who might be interested in any of the slew of topics that we talked about in this week's episode. And like I mentioned earlier in the episode, if you have any questions about this episode or future episodes or comments or anything, you can shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. There is a link for that down in the show notes that you can click. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, fool nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins podcast.